This morning, we are, like I said, discussing and unpacking the promise of presence. And what I want to do this morning is we are going to be looking at this psalm, and we're going to essentially break it down into three sections. We are going to look at this passage under three headings. The first thing we're going to see this morning is we are going to take a closer look at our search. Every human being is on a search, and we're going to begin by looking at our search. Then after we look at our search, we're going to look at the standard. There's a standard that is given for us in this passage, so we're going to look at and unpack the standard. And then we're going to conclude by looking at our substitute. So our search, the standard, and our substitute. Okay? So let's begin by looking at and identifying the search that every human being is on. Look what it says in verse 1 of this passage. I'm going to reread it for you. It says, Lord, listen to this, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain. Now, Psalm 15, verse 1 just actually the whole psalm in, in general, is actually a very interesting psalm. And, and the reason why it's such an interesting psalm is because what some commentators say, not all, but what some commentators say is that this is most likely the psalm that Jesus was preaching on in the Sermon on the Mount. Because the language that Jesus uses in this psalm is very similar, almost verbatim to the language that he uses. Uh, so the language that's in this psalm is almost verbatim to the language that Jesus uses on the Sermon on the Mount. So there's a good chance that this is actually the psalm that Jesus was preaching on the day that he was on the Mount, that the most you know, important sermon in human history was preached. And actually, side note, in the fall, we are going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount, so I'm looking forward to that. But here's what's interesting about Psalm 15. I don't know about you, but I've actually have never heard a sermon on Psalm 15, and we're going to find out in, in not too short, not, not too long, why why you haven't heard a sermon on Psalm 15, okay? It's very depressing and very crushing, okay? <laughs> but here's what's interesting about verse 1. Commentators, scholars, they, they describe verse 1. It's called entrance liturgy, and here's what entrance liturgy is. Back in the day when David was writing this, there was this, this thing called entrance liturgy. So what it meant was, was if you were a follower or a worshiper of any religion, what you would do is you would go to your temple, you would go to your holy building, right, your holy sanctuary, and what you would have to do is you would have to ask the priest, what were the requirements for you to go in and worship? And that was called entrance liturgy. So with almost every religion back then, what you would do is you would go to the temple and you would ask the holy person, the, the, the priest, if you will, hey, what will it take for me to enter into your deity's presence. And then what the, the, the priest would do is he would explain to you what it would take. And many times it was external behavior. There were rituals that you had to carry out. There was, there was you know, chants that you had to sing out. The, the, usually there was some, some external thing that you had to do. And once you did it, then you were allowed to go into worship. And so this is not common to us, but it was very common back in David's day. And so what David is doing here in verse 1 is he's giving us entrance liturgy. He's asking the question, look, what, what will it take for us to get into God's presence. We know about all the other deities and what they require, but what, what does it take to get into God's presence? What type of person does God accept is essentially the question that's being asked here. And here's the thing about this question. On the surface, this question almost seems like, you know how when you were, you know how when you were younger in, in, in school, some of you might be in school right now, but when, when you, there were certain tests you were taking, and then at the end of the test, there was like an extra credit class question, right? And the, the, the overachievers would go and answer it and try to get a better grade, and the people, most people would be like, yeah, I don't got time for that. I'm done. I'm turning this thing in. This subject, the, the, the presence of God to many people, it, it almost seems like extracurricular information. 
It's almost like, do I really care what the answer to this question is? Like, do I really care? Like, am I losing sleep over this question being answered? Probably not, right? Like, no one here came this morning saying, what do I got to do to get into God's presence? Like, what, what is required of me to get into God's presence? And I think there's many reasons for that, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I, and, and here's what I got to admit. When I started studying this passage this week, I was actually one of those people. And when we actually prepared this series, it was me and the pastors on the, on the teaching team, I, I actually saw this week as like the, the lesser week. Like, I'm like, oh, we're not really going to get a lot that day. Seriously. Like, I could, I could almost anticipate, like, what subjects are going to work and which ones are going to be kind of lame. And this was one of the lame ones. Like, I was looking at it, and I'm like, how often do I think of God's presence? Not, not often. doesn't really affect me. Now, last week when we were talking about God's plan and providence, I think about that a lot. But God's presence? Not really. But here's why the Lord convicted me. Here's why the Lord shattered me. Because this question or questions are the most important questions a human being can ask. Now, I know some of you are going to say, oh, well, that, you're just saying that because you're a pastor, and every week it's the most important thing you'll ever hear so that I listen to you for this week, and then next week it'll be that will be the most important thing I will ever hear. But, but I mean this, like with no exaggeration. The more I studied this passage and the more I wrestled with this psalm, the more convicted I was because this literally is the most important question or questions that you, a human being can possibly ask. See, we, we've always considered wisdom so a wise person, we've always defined a wise person as someone who has the right answers. But in light of scripture, what we see is that a truly wise person is someone who asks the right questions. Okay? And the reason why a lot of us aren't looking for this answer is because we're not asking the right question. But just because we're not asking the right question doesn't mean that that's not the question we should be asking. Does that make sense? So, so the problem is us, not, not the Bible. This is with no exaggeration, the most important question that every human being on earth has to answer. How do I get into God's presence? What does it take? What type of person do I have to be in order to be accepted and brought in to the presence of God? This is the question of questions. It's not extracurricular. It's foundational. What type of person does God accept into his presence. What does it take for me to dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? And he, here's, the word about, here's the thing about that word dwell and the word live. The word dwell, it means to inhabit. It means to reside. It means to stay in a place for an extended period of time. And so the question that David is asking is not, hey, Lord, what does it take for me to come worship you on Sunday at the temple? No, no, no. The question is, how do I get in and stay in? That's what the word live there means too. The word live there means a pattern of life. So, so, so how do I get into your presence and stay there? It's a really important question that we need to address if we are going to get to the bottom of why God put us on earth. Now, here's why I'm not exaggerating when I say this is the most important question that an individual can ask. Because if you look at the Bible, all throughout Scripture, the Bible starts with God's presence, and then it ends with God's presence. So, so in the garden, what made the garden the garden was God was there, right? 
And then what, what the, the biggest punishment outside of spiritual death when Adam and Eve got booted out of the garden was that God was no longer there. They were removed from his presence. And not only that, but he put a sword at the, at the, at the, at the entrance of the garden so that if anybody would even think about coming back, they would get skewered and destroyed. Okay? So, so you see God's presence at the beginning of the Bible, and then there's a lot of things that happen in between, and you see God's presence at the end of the Bible. And so the presence that is lost in Genesis, God does everything in his power. He overcomes every barrier in order to get us back into his presence in Revelation. And so I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that God's presence is the point of the entire redemptive narrative. It's the point of the entire Bible. And so that's why this question is the most important question that we can ask and answer. How do I get back into God's presence? Because we haven't been in God's presence since the garden. And think about it, think about it. So, so if what, what, what made the garden the garden was God's presence, right? And then God shows up to Abraham and he starts walking with the people of Israel. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that what made Israel unique was God's law. It wasn't God's law that made Israel unique. The, the Old Testament makes, makes it very clear. What makes Israel unique was God's presence. That God dwelt among them. He dwelt among them in pillars of, of smoke and of fire. And then, and then, and then you see him uh, dwell among them in the tabernacle and then ultimately in the, in the temple. So, so what made Israel Israel was God's presence. It wasn't their holiness. It wasn't their religiosity. It was God's presence that made Israel Israel. So you're seeing a theme here. You're seeing the theme of God's presence running all throughout Scripture. And then in the book of Ezekiel, you have one of the saddest moments in human history, in, for sure Israelite history. Ezekiel sees the, the, the presence of God leave the temple. So, so, so in, 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 Revelation, in, in the garden, God's presence is there, and sin causes God's presence to leave. Then in the temple, God's presence was there, and sin causes God's presence to leave. But here's what's beautiful about the gospel. That the very, thing that caused God's, the very thing that caused God's presence to leave in the Old Testament is the very thing that brings God's presence. Sin, instead of causing God to leave, causes God to arrive in the New Testament. See, Pentecost is special not because people were speaking different languages. Pentecost is special because the Spirit was back. God's presence was back on earth. And so I need you to see that throughout Scripture, the thread... The most important thing, the, 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 whether, listen, whether you are a Christian or a Catholic or a Muslim or atheist, wherever you're coming from this morning, the most important thing, the most important question that you're asking, even if you don't know if you're, that you're asking it, even if you don't want to admit that you're asking it, the most important question that your soul is asking is, how do I get back into the presence of my God? And not just get back to hang out for a little bit. But how do I dwell? How do I reside there? How do I live there? How do I inhabit the space that he's in? How is the question that your soul and your heart is asking, whether you know it or not? I think a lot of us aren't getting the right answers because we are not asking the right questions. I know that was my problem this week. And so that's what we have to address here. Here's what's interesting about God's presence. And this only reinforces the concept of this is the search that every human being is on. God's presence, and I've noticed this in my own life, and maybe you can relate, but the, the, the very thing that comforts me the most is the very thing that convicts me the most. 
So, so when I'm struggling, when I'm alone, when I'm suffering, there's nothing that comforts me more than God's presence, right? But when I'm sitting and I'm far away from God, there's nothing that convicts me more than God's presence. So my highest high and my lowest low all happen in God's presence. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like there's times where I'm, I, I, there's, no, there's no better news that I'm in God's presence. And then there's times where there's no worse news than I'm in God's presence because he just saw that. I heard about a guy who, this week, about who a guy who was struggling with sexual sin for the entirety of his adult life, and he tried memory verses, and he tried websites, and he tried all these different things to try to fight against it. And what ultimately helped him overcome the, the temptation was the fact that God was present. When that finally hit him, it changed everything. He said, because I wouldn't watch porn if someone was standing here, and yet the God of the universe is looking at me. That's why, listen, listen. What David is getting after here is not God's omnipresence, but God's imminence. And those two things are different, okay? So when, when we say omnipresence, it's, it's a big word. Here's what it means. We believe in light of scripture that God's omnipresent. In other words, God is everywhere at the same time. So God is equally here as he is in New Mexico, as he is in Africa. God is everywhere. That's what omnipresence means. But what David's getting after here is not the omnipresence of God. He's getting after the imminence of God. Because here's what the imminence of God is. If the omnipresence of God is God is everywhere, the imminence of God is God is here. So he's everywhere in general, but he's here in particular. That's the imminence of God. That's what he's getting after here, not the omnipresence. So if the omnipresence of God reveals that God is powerful, then the imminence of God reveals that he is personal. Okay, let me say that again. If, 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 the, if the omnipresence of God reveals that God is powerful, then the imminence of God reveals that God is personal. He's personal. That's what he wants for you and for me. The question is, why don't we, I kept wrestling with this this week, like, why do I not care about this? Like, why, do, why am I not losing sleep about what does it take for me to get into God's presence? Like, why am I not wrestling with this on, on, on a daily basis? I think there's two reasons. I think one reason is because of our spiritual coldness. We're just cold. And when we're cold, we, we forget what we actually need. It's sin. It's, 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 it's our, our, our lack of intimacy with God. That's why, listen, the reason why you need to be in God's word every day, a lot of people are legalistic about reading God's word in prayer. They're like, oh, if you want God to love you, you got to read and you got to pray. No, 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 you don't have to. In light of the gospel, the work is done. So, so, so you don't, you don't, listen, you don't read God's word in order to get God's approval. You read God's word to be reminded that you have God's approval. You see, because I can know that God is present objectively, but I might not feel him subjectively. And so the reason why you have to spend time in God's word is not because it's a spiritual checklist that, oh, I feel better now because I did what I had to do. It's because the longer you stay away from God's word in, in prayer, the more likely you are to forget that God's present. You guys have heard me describe it like this in the past. It, the story of the father and the son who, who are walking down the street, and the father's holding the son's hand. And, and all of a sudden, the father picks the son up, gives him a huge hug, gives him a kiss, and says, I love you. In that moment, it's not like he's more, the, he's, he's more his father in that moment. right? It's not like he was like, I wasn't your father, and now I am your father because I told you I love you. No. But what, the kid, what just happened with the kid is he objectively knew that was his father as they were walking down the street. But now he subjectively knows that's his father. 
His status hasn't changed, but he's been reminded of that status. That's why time with God is so important. It doesn't get you God's approval. It reminds you of God's approval. Okay? So one of the reasons why I think we're not asking this question is because of our spiritual coldness. The other reason is because of our lack of community. You know why you have to be in a small group if you're not in a small group already? Because when you're in community with other believers, Jesus says in Matthew 18 that when two or three gather in my name, I am there. I am among them. When I think about my own life, even as I think about my prayer life and my time with Jesus alone, I am much more likely to experience God's presence in a small group of believers or even in a group like this than I am by myself. You, when you, I, we, we went through 1 John last year, and you, you see the connection between God and people, God and people, that how you are doing horizontally will reveal how you are doing vertically. And so if you're not in community, if you think you can do this thing by yourself, that might be part of the reason why God feels far away. And if God is omnipresent and God is imminent, the question that we have to answer is this. If God feels distant from you, the question you have to answer is who moved? Who moved? Because he did it. That's what we're addressing this morning. Okay? So we've identified and we've unpacked the search. Every human being, whether they want to admit it or not, is on a search. And, and if you go back to my three points, they're on a search. And the search that they are on is they are trying to get back into God's presence. That's what their soul is ultimately longing for. So now that we've asked the question, what does it take to get into God's presence? What type of person is needed to get into God's presence? The, the next thing I want the, the psalm does in verses two through five is it gives us, we ask the question in verse one, it gives us the qualifications in verses two through five. What David does is he gives us the standard. Hey, you want to know what it, it looks like to, to, to complete the search? You want to know what it takes to get into God's presence? Well, I'm going to give you the standard. David, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us the standards that we have to meet in order to be allowed into God's presence. Get ready for this, because this is where it gets really encouraging, okay? Here's what, uh, here's what it says. It says, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. So let's, let's, let's look at this list for a little bit. Let's, let's, uh, let's unpack this for a little bit, okay? So we're trying to get into God's presence, verse 1. What, what does it take for me to get into God's presence? Well, Here's what David does. He, essentially what he does is he gives us four categories, four areas that we need to be meeting God's standard in order for us to get into God's presence. The first thing David talks to us about is our conduct. The only person that can get into God's presence is someone who has the right conduct. Look what it says there in verse 2. It says, the one whose walk is blameless. The word there, walk, it means lifestyle. So it doesn't mean something you did once three years ago or at a church camp 20 years ago. 
But the word there, walk, means a continual behavior or lifestyle. So you have to be one who walks continually in a blameless way. Now, there's a lot of blame in my life, but I don't know how much of it is blameless. Because the word blameless there means without blemish. It means spotless. It could actually mean perfect. The one whose walk is perfect. Okay? Now, here's the thing about blame. A lot of us have blame in our life, but it's not less of it. Okay? So, so we have people here who, who are husbands who are blaming their wives for their sin. You have wives who are blaming their husbands for their sin. You have parents who are blaming their children for their sin. You have children who are blaming their parents for their sin. You have citizens who are blaming their president for their sin. You have employees who are blaming their boss for their sin. Listen, the problem isn't them. The problem is you. So there's a lot of blame in your life and in my life, but we're busy blaming everybody else for what we do. You're the problem. I'm the problem. Okay? Then he says, just gets better and better, this, this passage, <laughs> as he speaks to us about our conduct, who does what is righteous. The word righteous there means just. It means to, to, to act in accordance with God's standards. Look at, think about the last two weeks of your life. Not the last month, not 2018, the last two weeks of your life, and I want you to tell me if on any of these of those 14 days did you walk and do what was righteous, what was just, what was good. I can take hands if you want. I don't maybe you I don't know. Then he says it's not just someone who has the right conduct, but someone, listen to this who speaks the right conversation, who has the right conversations. Because it says, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander. Listen, if you think you might pass the second one, you definitely aren't passing this one. It says that, this is, this is so funny. The Bible is ridiculous. Who speaks, listen to this, who speaks the truth, God's truth, Right, because remember what we said a few months ago that we live in a world that it's my truth and your truth. That's the biggest heresy there is because there's no such thing as my truth and your truth. There's my opinion. There's my preference. But there's only the truth. And so according to this passage, we are to speak the truth. Someone who continually speaks the truth from their heart. And let's talk about the word heart for a second. Because in the Bible, the word heart is so much more than just your emotions. When we think of heart, we, we think of, 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 of chubby Cupid babies, you know, that, that are shooting arrows at you. No, that's not what the word heart means in Scripture. It's your inner person. It is the center of the, the, the core, the middle of your being. It, it, your heart controls your volition. It controls your intellect. It controls your emotions. It controls everything about you. It is the seat of your person. It is the center and the core of who you are is the heart. I don't know about you, but my heart does a lot of talking. But none of it is true. And so, so, so I'll go to a meeting and my heart's telling me, oh, they should have, they should have praised you there. They gave someone else credit. That, that wasn't right. 
I'll, I'll be walking down the street or I'll be watching something on the news and be like, clearly I'm better than that person because look, look, look at where they are. Clearly, I'm superior to that person. Or we, we, we get in a fight with our spouse and we say, oh, well, but clearly they're the one in the wrong because the heart, your heart's like, you're right because of this and this and this. And you're always right anyways. He just needs to understand that you're always right. It's, just, it's his problem, not your problem. So I guess the better question is, when has your heart ever said anything truthful to you? Like ever, ever. Because the Bible says in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things. There's nothing truthful about my heart at all, ever. That's why it's so ridiculous when we as parents tell our kids to follow your heart. That's the stupidest thing you could have ever told. That might be the stupidest comment ever made in human history. So he talks about our conversation. Then he says, whose tongue utters no slander. The word slander there means to strip away. So when I, when I slander someone, I am literally stripping away their reputation. How many times do we slander people? We, we see something that's going on in their life and, and we, we assume, oh, it might be because their marriage is falling apart or it might be because they uh, are, are financially in debt or it might be because they they're, 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 you know, fill in the blank. And, we, and we, we slander people all the time. We make assumptions all the time. We get information about someone, and, and even as we're hearing it, we cannot wait. We're like, we already have a list of who's going to hear it next. Like, oh, my gosh, hurry up and finish. i got to go tell someone about this. So not only should your conduct be pure, but your conversation should be truthful. Then he talks about how we should care for one another because it says, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, which kind of has to do with the conversation, but... But, but, but you see the, the care for others. Who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. The word there, wrong, means to harm or to do evil. Do you, do I really care about people? Like, do you really care about people? Like, really care about people? Do I really care about people? No way. Even, even as you came in this morning, you can care less about what people are going through. What do you have for me? And even if we are thinking about other people, it's, man, I hope, I hope my kid's listening. I hope my husband's convicted. We don't care about people. You know what's funny about the Bible? The Bible says that we are to love our neighbors. And what I struggle with is I don't even, forget about loving the people I don't like, I don't even love the people I do like. How am I going to love enemies when I don't even love the people in my house? We don't have enough love to spare because all our care and all our love is for us. I don't have time to worry about what's going on politically. I don't have time to worry about the person on the street who doesn't have anything. I don't have time to worry about my employee or the person who's struggling at my job or my family member. I don't have time. I don't care about people. I don't. You don't. Like, you really, really don't. So forget about not doing harm or wrong. We don't do anything for anybody because we're too focused. We don't do right, right or wrong. We're just worried about ourselves. I'm too busy loving myself, my priorities, my needs. So you see it 
not just someone who has, it says, a right conduct, someone who speaks the right, has right conversations, and then someone who shows the right care for others. And if you go to the next slide, we see that it's someone who also, not only that, but someone who has, who, who has self-control financially. Because it says here that self-control, not just financially, but even in how they carry themselves. Because it says that keeps an oath even when it hurts. How often do we make promises to people? Think about how many promises you've made to your child this year and you haven't kept. How many promises we, we make to our employer, to our friends? I'm like, you know what, I, I'm overbooked, man, sorry, I thought I could do it. Couldn't do it. Even when it hurts, it says. And does not change their mind. That's comical. I change my mind from moment to moment about everything. And almost always, my mind change, changes based on what's convenient to me. We're constantly changing our minds about our spouse, about our kids, about our singleness, about our, about our walk with Jesus, about where God is in my life. We, we are constantly changing our minds. And the word there, change, that means not just to change your mind, it means to change your person. A lot of us, what we do is we change from, per, some, from place to place. So at church, we're one person, and then we go to, to work, and we're someone else, and then we go to our family, and we're someone else. And the problem is the people closest to us, they see the, the traveling roadshow, but we convince that we're, we're, we're convincing everybody. That's so why the word blameless that we were looking at earlier, it means to be whole. It means to be sound. It means to be the same person everywhere you go. And we're not. I can't tell you how many times my family and I will have a major fight on Sunday morning and then show up to worship Jesus an hour later. Like nothing happened. Kids, shut up. We're at church now. Put your church face on. But it's not just self-control with their person, it's, it's self-control with their money. Because it says, who lends money to the poor without interest, and then you go to the next slide. He says that, uh, who, and they say, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. So someone who, who, who financially controls their money and is not controlled by their money. Because some of you might be sitting here thinking, oh, well, I got this one because I have a 401k and I have tons of money saved in the bank. No, you could have a lot of money, but you think you control your money, but your money controls you. And Jesus says that if there's one thing that can control you and, and, and get you to worship it instead of God is money, right? Because Jesus says you either worship God or money. You can't serve two masters. There's a reason why Jesus puts money in that position because money is very, very tempting for us. It's someone who not only manages their money well, but someone who's not managed by their money. Here's what's crazy too, guys. If you look at, if you go back to verse 1, the, the, the locations that are being described here in this passage, I, and I almost, this is the part that probably most confused me from the passage as I was uh, like preparing this week. That the two locations, the sacred tent, which is the tabernacle, and the holy mountain, which most likely was Mount Sinai. I don't, I don't even get why David is asking the question, if I'm being honest. Here's why. Not because it's not, it's not because it's a bad question, but because David knew full well as a Jewish king who was not from the tribe of Levi, that he couldn't go into the sacred tent. Like he literally was not allowed to go in. Because in those days, the only people that can go into the sacred tent, which Moses was essentially the one that went in most of the time, but the only people that can go into the sacred tent were people from the tribe of Levi 
And then not only were you from the right uh, uh, family line, but then you had to meet certain standards in order to even be considered to get into the, t- into the Hosea tent. So I almost, it's almost like David is looking for something more. Because logically, in light of the Jewish law, he shouldn't even be asking this question because he knows the answer. He can't go there. Only Levites can. And the same thing with the holy mountain. The only individual who was ever on the holy mountain with God was Moses. No one else was up there. And so it's like, what are you asking for, David? Like, how dare you even ask that in light of what you know about the Bible? And it's almost like David, is, he's, 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 he's asking God for more. He wants more of God, even though he knows that logistically he can't have more of God. He, it's almost like he's begging for someone to come that will allow him to experience these things. So there's, there's an exclusiveness here, even in the locations that he's mentioning, even in the locations that he's choosing. Guys, here's the thing. Think about this. As high as these standards seem, they actually make perfect sense when you, when you reason it out logically. Because if sin is what God has kicked out of God's presence, then righteousness is the only thing that can get us back into God's presence. Does that make sense? So the standards seem really high and, and unrealistic. But when you follow the logic of Scripture, it's the only standards that can be, be, be met in order to get back in because if sin is what God has kicked out, then righteousness is the only thing that can get us back in. And here's the problem. According to Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says that without holiness, no man can see God. That's pretty clear. Don't really got to dig into the Greek there. Without holiness, no man can see God. And so again, the question is, if you in any way have lived this list out, I want you to go ahead and stand up for me right now. No takers? Okay. So there's a problem. Because we, 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 get, we ask the question in verse 1, then we are given the qualifications in two through five. And then all of a sudden we're like, okay, so is that it? There's, there's, if you look at the, at, at the psalm, there's nothing else. It just leaves you there. Hey, how do you get into God's presence? Do this. The end. Selah. <laughs> you know, be like the old... And you're like, what? How do, how do I do this? How do I get in? If this is, if this is here, here's what's crazy about Psalm 15, that, that on the one hand, it reveals our greatest need, but then on the other hand, it exposes our greatest problem. So, so it, it reveals our greatest need, which is God's presence, but then it reveals our greatest problem, which is our sin. And then it just leaves you there. And I think that's why a lot of people don't preach on this passage, because there's no hope in it. Like Psalm 15 is literally written to crush you. That's what it's written for, to crush you. And you know, you know honestly, as, as your pastor, the thing that, that I most shuddered over, the thing that I most was terrified and, and just heartbroken for this week is I can't imagine how many churches in America have preached on this passage and have told their people, go and do. Like it terrifies me. How many people have ended this and said, this is what you got to do to get into God's presence. Now, now go do it. You can't do it. 
I, I can't do it. It's meant to crush you. And if you're not crushed, then you're not going to get the comfort that comes from it. You, you, you first have to be crushed in order to be comforted. You have to be. Th this psalm is, is, is meant to expose you. It's meant to crush you. It's meant to reveal you. It's meant to strip away your false righteousness. That's the whole point of the psalm. And if you look at the end of the passage, look what he says in the last verse, last part of the verse of, of verse 5. You can go there. Thanks. He says, whoever does these things will never be shaken. The, the word there, shaken, it means to be, uh, dis, will never be dislodged. Will never, when we think of shaken, we think of like, you know, like an earthquake, but that's not what it means in Hebrew. The word shaken, it, 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 what, it, what it literally means, it means to, will never be let go. Will never be shaken loose is essentially what it's saying there. You will never slip through someone's hands. You will never be dropped. It has to do with insecurity. It has to do with stability. Whoever does these things will never be insecure and will always be stable. Well, here, well, if that's what it means, then we are shaken and stirred then. Because I can't do verses 2 through 5. You can't do verses 2 through 5. So who can do verses 2 through 5? Who, who, who is the he in verses 2 through 5? There's a he there, and he does this, and he does that, and he does that. And if that's not you and that's not me, then who, who is this person, who is this passage actually describing? And it's almost like David, based on the locations that he's trying to get into, the, the, the tent and the mountain, and based on the language that he uses, David is literally writing this psalm in such a way that he's pointing us to a substitute. Like he's saying there has to be a substitute. Because I can't do this and you can't do this. Like there needs to be a substitute, which then brings us to our third point. We, we've identified the search. We have laid out the standards. And once we do the first two, the only thing that we have left, the only hope that we have left is a substitute. And, and that's how David writes the psalm. He writes it in such a way so that you are forced to look outside yourself. He writes it in such a way so that you are forced to strip away your false righteousness and rely on someone else's righteousness. And, and the person that is being described here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is, is the only person who lived the right conduct throughout his whole life, had the right conversations throughout his whole life, cared for all people throughout his whole life, controlled himself emotionally and financially throughout his whole life. The only person who was able to carry the burden of verses 2 through 5 was Jesus. Listen, and Jesus carried the burden of verses 2 through 5 so that by faith in him, we might get the blessing of verse 1. He took on himself the burden, 2 through 5, so that we might get the blessing, verse 1. Now think about this. When you look at Jesus' life, here, here's, what's, here's what's amazing about it. Jesus... I want you to kind of process this for a second, what, what, what this man had to go through. Jesus was in the presence of his father. Perfect unity, perfect presence of his father. It's crazy that instead of just staying there, he leaves the presence of his father, he comes down to earth, 
And throughout his life, he continually seeks the presence of his father. In, 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 when he's 13, we find him at the temple, and he says, I must be about my father's business. I must be at my father's house. Then as he grows into adulthood, we see him every chance he gets, he goes off to pray in order to be back in his father's presence. And when you look at the trajectory, when you look at the intimacy, when you look at the proximity that Jesus had with the Father, it makes the cross that much more unbelievable. Because at the cross, what killed Jesus wasn't the lashes. What killed Jesus, it wasn't the the nails. What killed Jesus was loneliness. It was abandonment. He lost the only thing that ever mattered to him. At the cross, he lost his father's presence so that through faith in him, we might get God's presence. Guys, you got to let that hit you. You got you to see what, 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 what it took for us to be brought, brought back into God's presence. And so what we see in Scripture, listen to this. The, the, the goal of the redemptive narrative, there's a redemptive narrative in Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The goal and the means of the redemptive narrative are God's presence. Why? Because the, the goal is clearly God's presence because we had God's presence. And the goal from Genesis, God's goal from that moment on was to get us back into God's presence, right? So the goal was God's presence. But what we see in the gospel is that not only was the goal God's presence, but the means is God's presence. In order for us to be brought back into God's presence, God's presence had to come down. The incarnation had to happen in order for salvation to happen. So God's presence is both the means and the goal of the redemptive narrative. That's what we see here in Scripture. And what I want to do as as I conclude is this. I really want to take this, this, this concept of God's presence, and I want to take it from up here, and I want to, I want to bring it down here where, where we are. And I want to tell you four ways in which the finished work of Jesus allows us to go into God's presence. The first way is that the finished work of Jesus gets us proximity that we didn't have before. The gospel allows us to experience God's presence because we get this proximity that we didn't have before. And here's what I mean by this. Jesus, according to Matthew and to John, he is the greater temple. Because Jesus looked at the temple and he says, behold, this temple, I will tear it down. And in three days, I will build it up again. And they're like, you're not going to tear this building down. He wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. He is the, top of the temple of God. And think about what Jesus did. Jesus, the, the, the ultimate temple, by dying on the cross, he replaced the old temple. And in doing so, he ripped the curtain. And so now we have proximity to God. And, and even more than just, I can get behind the curtain now, in Jesus, God came out from behind the curtain. And so, so the first benefit, the first blessing of the gospel is that now we have proximity with God. But listen, it's not just proximity. The other benefit that we have because of the finished work of Jesus, we also have protection. And what do I mean by protection? One of the things that you see in the Old Testament is that every time a human being is in the presence of God, they're, they're destroyed. The presence of God obliterates sinners. Okay? But what we have in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 33, you have this this beautiful story about Moses trying to get to see God's face. And God says, listen, bro, if you see my face, you're dead. You're done. You can't see it. 
And so God devises a plan. He says in Exodus 33, he says, here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to literally put you inside of a mountain so that as I pass by you, I won't destroy you. So that mountain became a protection for Moses. Moses was able to get closer to God than before because he was in the mountain. He was in the cleft of the rock. According to Scripture, Jesus is the new cleft in the rock. I can get close to God and be protected from his holiness and not be destroyed because I am in the cleft of the rock, which is in Jesus. I am in Christ, so I can get closer to him. That's what it says in Hebrews, that Jesus intercedes in the presence of God. So I am before the presence of God, not because I'm there, but because I'm in him. I am safe and I am nestled in the rock of ages. That's the protection that Jesus gives you. But it's not just proximity. It's not just protection. The other thing that Jesus gets for us in the presence of God is he, he wins for us God's pleasure. God is pleased with us. So it's not like he's sitting there thinking, oh, well, yeah, I guess you can come in. But God is pleased with us. Why is God pleased with us? Well, here's what it says in the, in, in the Bible where when there's two times in Scripture where, where Jesus is doing something significant at his baptism and then at the transfiguration. And both times God describes him as my son with who I am well pleased. And so if I am in Christ, when God sees me, he sees Christ. And so God's pleased with me, not because of me, but because of Christ. In Psalm 17, so two chapters later, David is writing and he writes what, again, David just had, was very bold in his prayers, especially for an Old Testament person. He writes, you could tell that it was the Holy Spirit inspiring him. He describes himself and Israel, which is ridiculous, but he describes himself and Israel as the apple of God's eye. And you know, you know this, was, this was fascinating to me. In Hebrew, that phrase, the apple of God's eye, literally means, this is how it's, it was, what it says in Hebrew, it's little, the little man in someone's eye. So here's what it means. To be the apple of someone's eye, that phrase is actually very similar to the way we use it today. When you say someone's the apple of your eye, not only do they have your protection because you're close to them, but they have your pleasure, like you're pleased with them, right? But, but the, the phrase, the, 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 the apple of God's eye, that apple of, of someone's eye, in the Hebrew, it literally means a, the little man in someone's eye. So here's what it means. It means that you are so close to someone that you can see your reflection in their eye. Think about that. That's what it means in Hebrew. The little man of the eye. I am so close to God that I can see my reflection in his eye. And he's not, not only is he that close to me, but he's pleased with me. Guys, that's crazy. Come on. That's crazy, right? Am I the only one blown away by this? So he gets us proximity with God. He gets us protection from God. He gets us the pleasure of God. And then the last thing, and this one is one that could be easily missed. He gives us the power of God. And he, here's what I mean by this. When we, and this is going to sound like I'm, you guys are going to be like, whoa, Will never says this, but I need you to understand this. Think about verses 2 through 5 and how ridiculously high those standards are. What we see in verses 2 through 5 is a list that's not true of us. It's only true of Jesus, okay? Every week here, we preach on the comfort of the gospel. In the gospel, we find comfort. But you know what we also are called to? In the gospel, not only do we have comfort, we also have a calling. There's comfort in the gospel, but there's a calling in the gospel. And here's what this means. 
That whenever you are insecure, you, you, you rely on the comfort of the gospel. Whenever you're acting worldly, you look to the calling of the gospel. Because what happens is when you only hear the gospel, you're like, oh, well, I can do whatever I want and just be a sinner and never live for Jesus. But in the, in the, in the New Testament, it talks about us living a life worthy of the gospel. So, so as I understand the comfort of the gospel in Christ, the more I start to live out the call of the gospel. So in other words, this list, as crazy as it seems, 10 years from now, if you're a Christian, you should look more like this list than you do today. Because if this is actually a description of Jesus, you should be coming more like Jesus. We said last week, that's God's ultimate purpose. And so when you hear the gospel every week, you're like, oh, I don't got to do anything. I can be whoever I want. I can be a pagan and God's going to accept me anyways. Well, that means you're only accepting the comfort and not living out the call. Jesus gives us the power to do it. Because I become more like him day after day. And so what we see, guys, in Scripture, is that the presence of God is both the goal and the means. The goal of the redemptive narrative of God was to get us back into his presence. So if the goal of the redemptive, redemptive narrative of God is the presence of God, then that means the means is the person of Christ. In Jesus, in Christ Jesus, we have someone who completed the search, someone who fulfilled the standard, and someone who became our substitute. Amen?